Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Dr. Carol Francis, I'm so glad you could join me and tuning in to this means that you are either in the process of experiencing your own death or the likelihood of that coming, which is actually likely for all of us, or you're helping someone else transition who is very dear to you or is part of your select individuals that are depending on you. Death is something that is inevitable in life. Why cannot we talk about and prepare for it the same way we would for a marriage, for childbirth? for college preparation, it just needs to be part of the package of what we do and how we think and how we come to terms with the fact that we are living a human experience, which means we are finite, we are mortal, and we will die. In some respects, individuals who die just suddenly have the benefit of not having to walk through the rather dreary, fearful, uncertain uh, collapse, the progressive collapse of capacities, knowing that you're walking toward death's doors, knowing that it is inevitable and that there's nothing else you can do about it other than either make it as painless or as free of anxiety or as organized as possible. To be able to say goodbye to loved ones is a benefit of that slower process. To be able to get your affairs in order is the benefit of that slower process. To be able to make up for errors as much as you possibly can by apologizing, by confessing, by reaching out is a possible benefit of dying slower. But for the caregiver, it's a different process. Now, I would like you very much to go to the radio show that's with Susan Kohler and myself talking about the process of caregiving and what's involved in taking care of individuals who are having a collapse of their brain functions and their body functions that results in Alzheimer's or various forms and various degrees of dementia. Because you as a caregiver need to know what you're dealing with and how difficult that is. And that would also be on my YouTube, YouTube Dr. Carol Francis. But today in particular is a discussion about how you walk your loved one through the process of dying. Now, if you are watching an elderly woman die who has outlived their male partner, most likely that elderly woman has lived alone for a period of time, has been a caregiver for both children and for an elderly partner, and now is watching herself go through a process that she's assisted others going through. If that woman has had an opportunity to be able to put her affairs in order, 
financially in terms of developing a trust or astute money management in one way or another or being able to organize the paperwork, the bills, um, the, the financial burdens as assets as, as well so that both the debts and the assets that are going to be part of the estate, so to speak, will be able to be taken care of wisely, then that elderly woman is going to die more peacefully because she feels like she has taken care of her affairs. Now, whether we agree that those are vitally important affairs or not because we are immaterial or materialist, it doesn't really matter. There will be a sense that that person will say, okay, I've done as much as I can. I have left as little of a negative um, imprint or footprint as we're talking about in terms of the environmental consciousness uh, as, as possible for those who are taking care of my estate or for my children or for my loved ones. And that will be a consciousness for a woman and a man who are in the passing stages and often you will see them getting their affairs in order. So how do you help an individual face their death in that regard? Well, Obviously, you help them get their affairs in order. And you help them in such a way as they're the leader and you're the follower. They're the one that makes the independent decisions and you're the one that helps the execution. That way, it is an expression of themselves. Now, to the degree that there is confusion or disorientation or cognitive slippage, that's going to be more difficult because you'll have to repeat yourself, get the same people over and over to assist and repeat themselves as well, help them think it through day in, day out, until finally they're able to come to a conclusion, signature, a decision, a deviation of a financial concern. So it is, takes utmost clarity and selflessness to be able to say, let me help you organize what will happen after you die with your affairs, with your materials, with what you own or owned. Let me help you do it your way, which brings me to the second point. Every individual that's going through dementia, Alzheimer's, aging, also wants the vast majority of the time as much independence, as much self-expression of their individualism as is possible so that every opportunity is given to them to make choices and hopefully choices between the two best and healthiest choices in life, where they want to live, where they want to die, what they want to do with their finances, who they want to write to, talk to, call, or what they'd like to do with their day. And if they're not ambulatory, their choices are sitting up in bed or lying down in bed. If they're able to go to the bathroom, the choices are between going to the bathroom in their diaper, in their potty seat next to their bed, or in their bathroom uh, as per se what they're accustomed to in terms of walking there and being assisted there. In terms of do they need to be taken care of, they get choices. Who's going to take care of them? What hours? Who's going to cook what? You know, they, as much as possible, choices. The less finances they have, the less choice variable they're going to have. So they can have more independence and they have more resources. And frankly, you as a listener are probably one of their resources, emotionally, pragmatically, meaning financially, in terms of your effort and time. You are probably the source of whether they're going to eat one thing or another, whether they're going to be able to sit up or not, whether they're going to be visiting or not, whether or not they're going to be in a caregiving uh, facility or at home or not. So you are one of their resources in terms of being able to offer them an opportunity to express some form of individuality, choice, and independence. And that seems to, more than anything else, 
keep them less anxious and more feeling like they're in control of their life. However, one of the anxieties of dying is that they know that they're losing their capacity to choose with clarity and wisdom. The progressive sense of self-doubt, the minimal sense of social pleasures that come with coupling with another individual and knowing what's going on, their loss of independence in terms of even taking care of their own bodily needs and functions and waste products, their own inability to prepare their own food, for example, their inability to reach out to people when they're lonely or scared or depressed, their inability to even remember if they're taking their medications at the right time. It, it is also coupled with that they can become extraordinarily paranoid because of several things. Because when dementia and Alzheimer's or some variation therein creeps in, the capacity to remember what's been done, who's helped you, and what decisions you've made. And then hearing a person say it to you as if you've never heard it before makes you feel like someone's trying to feed you some false statement that may not be in your best interest. Uh, When any time they lose their independence, now they don't have their capacity to make their own choices and therefore someone making choices for them when they have been functioning on their own feels like it's a provocateur of their paranoia. Wait a minute, why is this person taking over? What are they saying to me? I don't remember that. They're trying to manipulate me. These sorts of natural, logical conclusions occur when there's such memory gap or cognitive slippage. Therefore, the building of the trust is in that you write down what they've said and you have them date it and sign it so they can read it later. Or you might record what it is they said so they can turn back to it and hear it later. Oh, I did say that. Okay, I kind of remember that. Oh, yeah, I did write that. I kind of remember that. You can put notes on their room walls that remind them that are big enough for them to read. Another thing that you can do in their environment is so that they can be oriented. Being disoriented adds to anxiety and paranoia and a sense of losing more and more independence. Where is that calendar and how big is it? Is it easy to read? Where is that clock that talks about not only the date of of the day, the, the day of the week, but also the time of the day? Many individuals will sleep through the day and suddenly it's dark and they don't know if it's day or morning, early in the morning, or if it's in the evening or if it's late at night. And they need to have a clock that lets them know that this is a.m., p.m., that this is morning or this is night. Another thing that you'll realize is they have that twilight anxiety or they cannot sleep at nighttime. And often they can't sleep at nighttime because they slept so much during the day, but also they can't sleep at nighttime because there's anxiety that comes in association with where is my caregiver, I don't hear the normal sounds of the day. I feel the emptiness of the time. I don't know if it's day or night. I haven't eaten in a while. I need to go to the bathroom. Where is my help? Um, And then also there seems to be an anxiety associated too. I feel like I'm more likely to die. I'm closer to death. My heartbeat goes slower. My respiration is slower. My body functions are slower. I'm colder in my body. I feel myself slipping in dreams. I feel myself actually dying in dreams. In fact, the near-death experiences for the elderly are more likely to occur when they are in a state of sleep and they pause and they stop and they die and then they re-arouse themselves or they are aroused by the caregivers around them out of their death. And so they have this experience of having died and come back. And when they have that slippage of experience, whatever that means to you, regardless of your religious or spiritual perspective, when you have that experience, no matter how you define or interpret that experience, it lets the person who's dying know how close and imminent death is. 
And for some people, that's incredibly anxiety-provoking. They feel the risk of sleeping, and therefore they don't want to sleep at nighttime. They fear the risk of sleeping leading to death, and therefore they would rather sleep during the day when there's a caregiver and there's activity and they're likely to hear in the background the activity going on even though they're sleeping. Whereas at nighttime, it's so still and so quiet and uncomfortable. What you can do, of course, is to make the nighttime more active. Have the music in the background. Have the television on in the background as well. Just soften enough to create a sense of motion and background movement so they have a sense that they're still connecting to their situation. You can go ahead and give them medication at that time. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not advising one way or another. But that's often the intervention in the hospital, morphine or uh, uh, some variation of pain reliever, anxiety reducers often given intravenously or in terms of tablet form at the nighttime shift so that their patients will sleep and rest so the nighttime shift will be more restful. But the problem is, is that whether they're in a nursing home or at home, they're going to be more inclined to want to sleep in the early morning hours and that's the time where it feels less risky for them to actually die. Well, let's go into the next idea. Is death gloomy? Well, yes. For many people, the act or the thought that they're going to die and slip from the unfamiliar, slip into the unfamiliar to see, to, to the unfamiliar, to to go into death, which is the unknown domain, to go out away from what is the known. Does does death hurt? Does death go to some horrible place? Does death go to a nothingness which feels so empty and lost? Does the whole purpose of life feel so meaningless? Is there a sense of regret and loss and and feeling they never had done enough, or life was never meaningful enough? What does it mean for them to completely move into death? It can be gloomy, sad, lonely, regretful, full of anxiety. Let's not kid ourselves in that regard. Now, I know that many among you may have embraced the agnostic or the atheist position, and the atheist position is a growing position in our society probably because there's been so much disillusionment and lies and misrepresentation for the, from the various schools of spiritual thought. However, even though Nietzsche did say that religion is the opium of his people, and indeed religion has been used by governments and other individuals to manipulate masses of individuals to believe something and do something and conform to something. However, if it is still the opium of the people, you might actually consider that we give our dying opium-type derivatives in order to relieve the pain and relieve the anxiety of their actual death. So let's look at the authenticity for a moment of actually being able to talk about the spiritual beliefs of the individual that you know that are dying. This sort of conversation is best had long before an individual starts losing their awareness. This is a conversation that if you're going to be the caregiver or you know people who are, if you begin to have them talk about what they think about death and dying, have they had any near-death experiences? Have they talked with individuals that have died or passed over? Have they heard or seen signs of individuals who passed or died over? Have somewhere in their life they experienced some sort of death experience? And what was that like when they came back? Now, these type of questions are not usually something we, you know, until we talk about taxes, finances, religion, or politics, but the truth is we should talk about all of that. But definitely we should talk about death and religion. 
not in terms of controversy and argument and, and, and uh, competition of who's right or who's wrong or dogmatism, but rather so that we are in the process of processing our own growing and evolving sense of what it means to die and is there life on the other side. Now, I will speak as a professional, but I will also speak as a person. Since I, too, am sharing in the human experience that you are, I have to face death as well. And so I do look for an understanding both of the research into the near-death or what is now being called the... um, Let me think about that for a moment. I don't have the book in front of me right now. But the experience is it isn't near-death, but it's the after-death experience. And so when people die and they're clinically diagnosed as dead and then they come back, they talk about their after-death experience. I think it's called an ADE now. Uh, by one of the researchers. So the after-death experiences, and please Google this, are being documented. They are so common that there is no medical doctor in the entire field of dealing with the elderly or dealing with the dying that doesn't have an experience specifically with a patient who has had an after-death experience or near-death experience. The thing that is more common now than before is that we now not only diagnose that, not only state that, not only research that, but we declare it as an actual authentic experience that is shared enough and has components that are similar with each other that we begin to say that we can research and objectify the experience. It happens no matter how that form of death occurs, no matter what the age of the person who has the after-death experience is, from a child to elderly. And I have had individuals very close to me who have had near-death experiences or after-death experience. I personally have had an out-of-life, out-of-body experience associated to an operation. Now, had I died, I don't know. At the time, they had not told me that there had been an ending of my vital signs. Um, And so I have no knowing of that. I can't factually discuss that. But I do know what it was like to be out of body, looking down on my body, being operated on, and what it was like in terms of the experience of being completely content, curious, interested, and without any anxiety whatsoever. Those individuals who have been very close to me who have died and had after-death experiences and come back have discussed the amazing experience of contentment, peacefulness, and awe. And whatever they saw, whatever they experience in terms of their visual, auditory, or physical um, or or, or association. How do you talk about this? In the spiritual realm, a a physical experience, such as in the different sensory packages that we have as human beings, um, there have been uh, amazing responses of, oh, beautiful, or, oh, the music was more, more resonant than ever. The colors were more radiant than ever. The the connections with the people that had passed was more meaningful than ever. So there's this this sense of grandeur, amazing, bigness, more than can be embraced in the human experience on Earth. And that is a common element with all after-death experiences that have gone in the positive direction. Now, you can also... Find individuals had after-death experiences that were stressful. And I'll leave that for another time in terms of the actual details of that. But what's interesting in researching either is that when the person comes back from an after-death experience, they usually go through a sense of depression and loss because if they were beautiful experiences, 
there was a sense of wanting to go back home because that feels more home than here. So there's a sense of depression or loss. There's a sense of having been let down. But there's also a sense of having to make this life extraordinarily important. So this brings me to you helping the person who's dying in front of you, talking way ahead of time. What have been their experiences along those lines? What were the experiences some of their friends or buddies that they know of? Have they had that discussion? Because people won't talk about after-death experiences or near-death experiences unless you ask them. And then they'll feel out that you're going to think they're crazy. And if they know that you're genuine, you will hear amazing stories from a very large percentage of the people that are closest to you. So your job in helping people die is to find out ahead of time where they are in terms of understanding the death experience in the context of the human experience. Is it passing on? Is it totally ending into oblivion? And if it's oblivion or the abyss of nothingness, then you must know on some level that most of those individuals will have a high level of anxiety and likely to depend more on those things that reduce anxiety and consciousness as the death process goes on. That would be the drugs, the medications. Those individuals that have a near-death experience are less likely to have anxiety. If they have a faith-based approach to death, they're less likely to have anxiety. They can dialogue about how this is a continuance as opposed to complete stoppage in life. Um, if they have that, that language added to, or if the following is the way they experience it, if they have images or visions of people who have passed on visiting them in their room. And again, you want to open up the possibility of them dialoguing with you. And the way to do it is to say, oh, you know, I was thinking of uncle so-and-so. I was thinking of your husband. I was thinking about granddaddy. I was thinking about your sister. Anybody that you know that's close to them that they had a good connection with that has passed on, just bring it up and see if they say, oh, yeah, I was just talking to her the other day or I saw her the other day they will more likely start the discussion if you bring up the person's name. Or you can talk about that person in a positive way and even say, well, you know, I'm wondering if you're going to see them when you die. (laughs) Are you going to see whomever the religious master is? Are you going to see Christ? Are you going to see the Buddha? Are you going to see uh, God himself? You know, are you going to see angels? You know, what are you going to see when you pass over? What do you anticipate? What's it going to be like? And they can talk about what they want it to be, what they anticipate, what they imagine, what they desire, what they hope. And they can also talk about their fears. And to be able to articulate with you what their fears are and what their anticipation is, both are important because now they're sharing their very lonely series of thoughts that they don't feel anybody else wants to hear or know about. They feel ashamed or embarrassed. They feel like you're going to think they're crazy or like they're morbidly occupied. The truth is they are morbid and that they are talking about death from the point of view of our culture. But they're not morbid because they're talking about a human experience. And you're there to help them dialogue that process without judgment. In a book that I uh, wrote, an anthology of different articles of women called Evolving Women's Consciousness, Dialogues of 21st Century Women, and you can order that through my website, drcarolfrancis.com. The very last main contributor was a woman 90 years old talking about the death process. She starts off her chapter by saying, I hate to tell the younger generation of women that getting elderly is a struggle, but it is. 
Perhaps knowing what struggles you will face will cause you to make plans and alter actions so you can optimize your elderly future as a woman. She states throughout this chapter that it's just not easy to die. It's not easy to watch your faculties go and watch your, your, your sense of needing to depend on others increase. Your inability to take care of certain things and your anxiety to to uh, to know if you can do the right thing or making the right information, right decision. She continues some pages later and says, transitioning to the golden ages means facing some of the most challenging times of your life. Managing your health requires attending to eating, medicine, and medical visits with more carefulness than ever before in life. Managing financial concerns when I am periodically confused is tricky enough, but now banks and financial institutions are not trustworthy and my mind is no longer trustworthy. Like the doctors, every organization that I pay bills to now requires that I read and reread all the details. I'd have to do that if I weren't elderly, but now I'm so confused. So now so much of my day is built in handling bills and asking questions. You have to work harder to maintain your mental clarity at this age, and yet thinking clearly is far more important when there is no income or salary to make up for, for any of the mistakes I might make. Managing my sleep so I'm not fatigued takes thoughtfulness, and I become frustrated that I just cannot simply be spontaneous and easygoing with my energy levels. Now if my energy levels are down, my walking, thinking, and movements might cause further problems, falling, breaking bones. I was sleepily getting out of bed. I banged my leg against the sharp corner of my bed stand. This is rather common, right? But I ended up in the hospital for several weeks with a major hole and infection in my knee. Death is something else that becomes vexing, she continues. Yes, I'm prepared to die, yet no, I am not prepared to die. I quite clearly, like most, have a strong survival instinct and do not give in to my wounds, illnesses, or weaknesses willingly. Remember the poem, Death Be Not Proud by John Donne? I know we all shall die, and taxes and death are certainties, all right. And by the way, I do taxes each year, and during the year my husband died, the taxes and death records were more difficult than ever. I took a year just to straighten it out. The IRS doesn't care if I'm dying or if I'm depressed. Life or death, you know, I would always choose to live. I fundamentally am intrigued by this process and by all the phases of life that I have faced. Phases as a daughter during world wars, during the Depression, during recession, during extreme poverty, when women didn't vote nor drove. I am intrigued by the changes in technology. I don't understand my cell phone that's in my hand, and I have to be reminded daily that that's the way I call my family. I'm intrigued by everything going on around me. But things change. Now this is about surviving or it's about ending. It's about ending. Can anybody help me end? I'm afraid. I'm very afraid. So when your loved one is afraid, you hold their hand, you talk to them, you repeat the answers to their questions, you reassure them, you remind them what their faith is. You deal with their anxiety. You have the doctors and the nurses come to their aid. You ensure that they know that you love them. You touch them. You massage them. You tend to them. You keep them as aware of you and of them as you possibly can. And you talk about the death process. 
You talk about carrying them over. You talk about it. You imagine it with them. Here's an example. I'm standing beside next to someone, and I say to them, I had a dream, which is true. I had a dream about you. I had a dream that when you passed over, you were going to see a field of flowers that were so beautiful and radiant, like the paintings that you've tried to paint all your life. The brilliant oranges and blues and greens just pop out, and you're in the middle of it, and the smells are radiant, and the sounds, it's like music flying through the flowers. And there, there, you see, your sister, she's waiting for you. And guess what? Now she flies. Now she flies. You see the beauty of her wings? She's coming our direction. Hi, sister, I'm here waiting for you. I'm here. I can barely wait until you come. I know you're scared, and I know you don't know what to expect, but I'm here for you, and I'll help you cross over. And I tell that to the person because it's authentically my dream. And they look at me and they said, is that for real or a dream? I said, well, it's a dream. But I think it's real, but you'll have to see. It's these sort of statements to them that make them wonder about their own considerations of what will happen in their after-death experience. Their after-death experience may not be something they come back to argue about. Like those in my life that have died and come back to tell me, you're not going to know except when they do die, I'm going to tell you, they'll send signs. But the signs are signs you're going to need to listen to and watch and see, and I assure you, you'll feel crazy telling other people about them, but they'll be very clear to you. Now, those of you that embrace the atheistic position, I have no problem with that at all. All of us have a reason for embracing why, but nonetheless, even with that position, Listen and watch. Be as open as possible because the truth is none of us know for sure. And that's why we get afraid. That's why we have anxiety. That's why that person in front of you that's passing on before you is afraid. Do they really know? Do any of us really know? We can believe. We can have a sense and we can have an experience. But we are passing into a journey and we do not know what they're waiting for us. So say goodbye to them. And help them say goodbye to you with as much love and peace and kindness as is possible. Don't bring up the arguments. Don't bring up the regrets. Don't bring up the antagonisms unless there's plenty of time to talk it through and move to healing. Keep it as positive between the two of you as is possible. Because those will be the moments that ring your bell as you think about the person you love. And will ring yours as well. I hope this has helped you in knowing that you are their shaman, you are their priest, you are their angel in helping them move across. And they need it. They need you. Even though you don't quite know what they're going to go into, neither do they. But it is their experience and you're there to hold their hand until they hold someone else's hand on the other side. As Dr. Carol Francis, give me a call, 310-543-1824, or write to me about your experiences of after death or helping other people pass over. And you can do so at Dr. Carol Francis Show at gmail.com. Dr. Carol Francis Show at gmail.com is D-R-C-A-R-O-L-F-R-A-N-C-I-S-S-H-O-W at gmail.com. Peace to you all. Take care of yourself. This is a human experience, which includes death. Be well.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.